Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm the Artesia campus pastor, and not to be confused with your soon-to-be Fullerton campus pastor, also by the name of Daniel Kim, uh, who will be coming and joining our staff. We're very excited for him to come uh, in January. And uh, yeah, we, his nickname, or his middle name, his official middle name is Penn. You could call him Daniel Penn. My nickname, as many of you know, is Dinko, so you could just continue to call me Dinko. Uh, it's my pleasure to bring you the word this morning. We're starting our Advent series, and we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You could turn there in your Bibles. We also have it projected for you overhead. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. I'll read this for us, and may God the Holy Spirit bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to death, or sorry, to shame, sorry. Uh, No, you know, you'll, you'll see why I said that. You'll see why I said that. Unwilling to put her to shame, betrothed, sorry, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we begin our Advent series today, I did want to start by clearing up a couple misconceptions we have about Christmas. Uh, Just a couple. Did you know that, I'm sure this one most of you already know, all of you probably know that December 25th is not necessarily the day that Jesus was born. We don't, we can never know that from the scriptures. And most likely, uh, scholars will tell you that Jesus was most likely born probably around September, right? It's just that we happen to celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th. And of course, we actually celebrate Jesus' birth throughout the whole year. We celebrate the fact that he came uh, as we confess in our creeds that, that God came down from heaven. The second misconception I want to clear up for you real quick. Did you know that in the scriptures, it never says that there were three wise men that visited the baby Jesus? Never says that there were three. Uh, We don't know how many wise men came to visit him. Uh, There were three gifts that they gave, but not necessarily three wise men. And they also did not visit him on the day of his birth. You know, we, we like that famous scene where, you know, the shepherds are there and they're at the manger and then the wise men come as well and they sing, we three kings of Orient are and all this stuff. But actually, if you read this, the scriptural account, the wise men, not necessarily three, visit him much later, months later, most likely. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you, hopefully, and hopefully that's not too scandalous to you. Hopefully you already knew those things. Uh, but, you know, the reality, the reason I bring up these little misconceptions is because we actually see some real scandal in the Advent story. The story of Christmas actually begins with some very real scandal. You, sometimes when we think about the, the, the story of Jesus' conception, 
Uh, we kind of breezed through it really quickly, but we need, what we're going to do today is pause just a little bit and see that this is, a, this is a scandalous moment. The birth of Jesus was, of course, very most uh, apparently socially scandalous. It was a social scandal. Jesus was indeed conceived out of wedlock. And Mary would be viewed as someone who was pregnant illegitimately, even by Joseph, at least for some time. And, you know, I think we can, even 2,000 years later, we can uh, imagine the, the, the betrayal, the shame, the confusion of this situation. You know, even, even now, to get pregnant out of wedlock, perhaps it may not be as shameful as it was 2,000 years ago, but it's still an awkward situation. I still think back to when uh, I was a, my friends and I were teenagers. To get a girl pregnant before we were married was like one of our greatest fears. And of course, it was one of our parents' greatest fears. I remember very specifically a time when my mom sat me down. And she, she was very serious in her tone. And she said, you know, you've gotten into trouble for many things. For narcotics, for fighting. What's next? You're going to get a girl pregnant, right? And I, and I reacted and responded like any teenager would. I just was like, Mom, I don't want to talk about this. Get out of here. And I just totally dismissed it. And it was a fear for many. And it was, it was an awkward situation, perhaps even a very shameful situation for many. And for, in Jesus' time, for Mary and Joseph, that much more. They were betrothed. It was like an engagement, but much more serious, much more binding, much more of a commitment. And here was Mary, before their wedding date, getting pregnant, and of course, even more scandalous. Joseph knew it wasn't his. He knew it wasn't his baby. Now, when we read this story in this passage, it goes pretty quickly, right? It's just, a, it's just in a matter of verses, that, of two or three verses that this all happens. But you have to think, there was a lot of time that passed between Joseph finding out that his soon-to-be wife is pregnant and then him finding out the reality that this is something that God has done. There's a lot of time that passed. In fact, if you put the, the story of Jesus' birth from the Gospel of Luke and then put that together with the Gospel of Matthew that we just read, most likely Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant when Mary wasn't even around. She was out of town. She was staying with her cousin, Elizabeth, in a different city. And, and can you imagine finding out through hearsay? These are all small little towns. Word travels quickly. Can you imagine? He's not even with Mary right now. She's, she's, she's away. And he gets this news. And I could just, I don't know why, I picture Joseph pacing back and forth, just pacing back and forth like, what is going on? You know, when I'm stressed out, when I'm worried, I tend to pace. And my friends used to always make fun of me like, dude, you need to just relax, right? You need to relax. Stop moving around so much. I can imagine him pacing around and thinking to himself, how did this happen? I know Mary. I know she's a good woman. How did she get pregnant before we got married and without me? And I can imagine the confusion, the sense of betrayal, the sense of shame, the pain. And he can't even ask her some these questions. Our scriptures tell us that Joseph was a good man. Verse 19 says that he was a just man, a man who cared about justice and righteousness but he did not want to put her to shame. This is why I accidentally said, put her to death. Because in the Old Testament, and I'm sure Joseph thought this, I'm sure in a moment of anger, in a moment of feeling hurt, he probably thought this. He said, you know what? In the old days, 
In the Old Testament, someone who found themselves in a situation like this, they could be uh, subjected to capital punishment. And if this were the old days, I could really put her to death. I'm sure that crossed his mind because he knew his scriptures. And at least in Joseph's time, many years later, many generations later, still, perhaps there wasn't capital punishment for this situation anymore, but certainly there was public humiliation and disgrace. There was a strong punishment for something like this. And here we see Joseph, instead, because he's a just man and a compassionate man, he resolves to divorce her quietly. I like that combo. I love that combo. He is both just He wants to do the right thing. He cares about justice. He cares about what's right before the eyes of God. And so he does resolve to divorce her. In this situation, in this culture, to divorce Mary was the right thing to do. But because he's not just just, but he's compassionate. He says, but I'm not going to put her to public disgrace and shame like many others would in my day. I'm going to do it quietly. I love that combo. I love that combo. Justice and compassion. Too often, I think, we're, we're good at one but not the other. Right? Too often, some of us are so good at justice. We're so good at caring about what's right. Very black and white, but we don't have compassion to soften it. So what ends up happening, we become very critical of others, overly critical of others. We, come, we become very harsh with people we disagree with. We become hurtful, even, when we have all this sense of justice without compassion. But what about on the flip side? And, I, and it's my guess that most of the people in this room, they're probably a lot more on the flip side. Where we're really good at compassion, but we don't quite hold on to justice as much. We're really good at compassion, but not so good at, at justice. So what ends up happening? We become very lenient. We, we make excuses for everything. There's no accountability. And we just let everything go. But not Joseph. He had that combo, both just and compassionate, so he resolves to divorce her quietly. And Joseph is in this really tough place. So often in the Christmas story, we, we focus on Mary, right? We, we like to focus in the early parts of Advent on Mary, and as, as we should. She's the one that gave birth to, to, the, to the Son of God. But I, I just wanted to take, a, take some time this Sunday to really think of the situation Joseph was in, the scandal that he was in. And he was in that tough place because he didn't know right away what was going on. But Mary knew. Mary knew uh, even before she conceived that this baby would be from the Holy Spirit. She had already been told that by God. And there were others that knew. God, some of God's people knew this. For example, her cousin Elizabeth. She was so filled with the Holy Spirit, she actually recognized pretty much immediately who that baby in Mary's womb really was. She knew that this wasn't some product of adultery or sin or anything. She knew this was Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. There would be some who knew, but not everyone would have known this truth. There'd be some who just know how it appears. Here's this gal, Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. They're not married yet, but I see a little baby bump. She, and, and she wasn't really with Joseph. They were geographically apart, but now she's pregnant. And there would be those who know that. There would be those, you know, once again, small towns. Word travels quick. And in fact, this perception of Mary as having an illegitimate child, that would even follow Jesus into his life. 
We know from uh, extra-biblical references outside of the Bible that there were many opponents of Christianity who actually would uh, try to attack Jesus and attack following Jesus by saying things like that. Dude, that Jesus guy, he he was born of fornication, they would say. And we even have some hints in the scriptures, in the gospels. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus is debating with these Pharisees, and he's, he's, it's getting intense. They're like going back and forth. Jesus is bringing the fire. He starts bringing up fathers, my father, God. You're, you think your father's Abraham, but your father's really the devil. And he's bringing up fathers, and, and, he, and they're going back and forth, and it's getting in, more and more intense. And then you know what the Pharisees say to Jesus? They kind of say something fairly, at least seemingly random. They say, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We weren't. Jesus, you're talking about fathers? You, you, you get, you get in, you're trying to get, get gangster on us? Well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. You wonder why they said that, right? Because they had a perception of him. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, when Jesus is being rejected in his own hometown, Nazareth, right? There's that famous phrase, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And Jesus is preaching with authority, with power. He's doing what you would think he would do. Just he's doing a good job of preaching. But then these, these people from his hometown, some of them are listening and they're saying, isn't this that Jesus boy? Isn't this uh, the carpenter? And they say, isn't this the son of Mary? Once again, there's a hint there that there was, that phrase is loaded with, with all sorts of scandal. In Jesus' time, in, in Jewish custom, when you call someone the son of blank, you always say the father's name. And of course, we know the father is on the radar because they called him a carpenter, and they know his dad was a carpenter. Right Back then, you don't get to choose your job. right? You just do what your dad did. They know about Joseph. They know he's a carpenter, and they even mention Jesus was a carpenter, but then they go on to say, isn't this the son of Mary? And then they take offense, and they don't follow him. They don't listen to him. The birth of Jesus was socially scandalous. It'd be scandalous, of course, for Mary and Joseph, but even for Jesus into his life. But that wasn't the only way the birth of Jesus was scandalous. The birth of Jesus was also theologically scandalous. It was socially scandalous for Mary and Joseph, but it was also theologically scandalous for all the first century hearers, for the people who would hear about what what these Christians were claiming. That, that God became man, that as John puts it in his own kind of poetic version of the Christmas story, that the word became flesh. For you and for me, for, for Christians, we, when we hear the word became flesh, that's, that's heartwarming. We love that. We love the fact that the word, that God became man, that the word became flesh. But you know, for the first century audience, that would have been repulsive. We're getting a little nerdy here. Just, just for the sake of explaining why this was the case. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the worldview at that time was one that we call platonic dualism. It's a big word, but I think it's pretty easy to understand. Platonic, not because, it mean, not, we're not trying to say, you know, let's just be friends, let's just be platonic, but platonic as in coming from Plato, right? Influenced by Plato. And dualism, meaning uh, a very strong distinction between the physical and the metaphysical. A very strong distinction between uh, the, the body and the mind. So the, and the physical was viewed as low, as dirty, as inferior. 
right? You don't want to do manual labor, or you don't want to do work with your hands, or you don't want to like care about the flesh, right? What really matters is the is the metaphysical, like ideas, thoughts, rationality, and that was what was truly superior and pure. It was this really strong distinction. And that's why the influencers in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the influencers in their version of Instagram back then, it wasn't uh, the people with the nicest bodies. The influencers weren't the people who were best dressed. Who were the influencers in the ancient Greco-Roman world? It was the philosophers. It was the thinkers. It was the Plato's. It was the Aristotle's. And so what we see in the scriptures, what we see in the story of the birth of Jesus is that something that totally flies in the face of that, that God would become man, and and John actually makes it even more uh, offensive even. He says, the word, that which is rational and metaphysical and above and superior, pure, would become flesh. He uses that word flesh, and we, we have a term for that. We call it the incarnation, that God became flesh, and it's scandalous. It's shocking that Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us, in the deepest possible sense. This wasn't like some uh, ancient Greek God where God would just make a little visit to earth dressed up as a human, right? That wasn't the case. God would truly be man, truly be with us in the deepest, truest sense. We all know the famous Christmas song, uh, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And there's actually a line in that song that we don't really sing that much anymore. We kind of forget about this verse, maybe because it sounds a little bit weird. But there's a line in that song that goes, he, Jesus, abhors not the virgin's womb. Kind of weird sounding, right? Basically saying, Jesus didn't hate the virgin's womb. Jesus didn't detest the virgin's womb. And I get why we don't like necessarily, we're not dying to sing that line these days. It just sounds a little weird. But actually the songwriter His intention in saying that, and as well as for all those who sing it, they're marveling, right? They're marveling at this theological scandal. They're saying, how is it possible that God would not be like, whoa, I can't be in there, right? A womb is not exactly the Four Seasons Hotel, right? I mean, I don't want to be too offensive here, but the womb is a little bit bit messy, right? It's, 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 It's a little bit confining, and for God to say, for nine months, I'm going to live there. Right? It's not the type of place that you would expect to find God in a womb. And, and that's the point. That's the point of, of marveling and praising God in this song, saying somehow God found it appropriate that he would still end up in a womb of a woman, born into this earth. Similarly, Martin Luther, the Reformation theologian, he once wrote this. God feeds the whole world through a babe nursing at Mary's breast. God feeds the whole world through a baby nursing at Mary's breast. It's almost a baffling, humorous image. This idea that there's this little baby in Mary's arms drinking mama's milk, and at the same time, that little baby is holding up the whole universe. He's feeding the whole world, and it's this marvelous, baffling, even scandalous image that Martin Luther is getting at. He's saying, this is crazy. This is crazy. This is what God would do. This is what our God would do for us. And there is this theological scandal even. And then the last scandal I have for you, a lot of scandals today. The last scandal I have for you is that the birth of Jesus is intellectually scandalous. 
It was socially scandalous for Mary and Joseph and the people around them. It was theologically scandalous, especially for the first century hearers and, and listeners of the Christian message. But third, it, was in, it, was, it is inten- intellectually scandalous today. As you can see on the slide, according to a Pew study in 2017, the number of Americans who say they believe Jesus was born to a virgin has declined by about 10% since 2014. So in about three years, of the people surveyed, about 10% less now believe that Jesus was actually born to a virgin. I can concede it's, it's kind of hard to believe. It is, isn't it? And still, though, that percentage is relatively high. In that 2017 study, the percentage of people who did say, yes, Americans in, all around the country who said, yes, I do believe in the virgin birth, it was still about in the 60-something percent. And I can imagine a lot of people, a lot of people who are not down with Christianity saying, I can't believe it's still that high. As the theologian Al Mohler put it, every Christmas, weekly news magazines and various editorialists engage in a collective gasp that so many Americans could believe such an unscientific, supernatural doctrine. As people who live in a post-Christian America, we have, to be, uh, we have to recognize, we have to realize, we have to be real about the fact that, yes, this is a point of contention, that, uh, that our Savior, that this Messiah, that this Jesus, the, the one who began our entire faith, that it, it came, he came through a virgin birth. It is a point of contention for many opponents of Christianity and for even for many Christians. And the reason why is because it's so blatantly supernatural. There's no way around it, right? It's just blatantly supernatural. And you know, the thing I want to tell you is that for all of us here in 2018, we know that 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 is just blatantly supernatural. But you know what? Everyone knew that 2,000 years ago too, right? Everyone knew that virgins don't have babies. And, And it was a sticking point even then. There are actually other opponents of Christianity who use the virgin birth, who attack the virgin birth, use it as a ammunition against Christians. There are other opponents of Christianity who actually say that the virgin birth is copied from other religions. You may or may not have heard that before. Like, you know, did you know that in other religions and other ancient cultures before Jesus, there were things like the virgin birth then too? Maybe not exactly the same as what happened to Mary, but what do you know? If you study the ancient religions and ancient myths and ancient legends, there's a lot of special people who have special birth stories. A lot of gods and demigods and kings who, claim, who, who have these special birth stories attached to them. And sometimes people like to treat that, that re- realization, that revelation, as if it's um, some kind of silver bullet against the doctrine of the virgin birth. But I actually don't think it's as strong as people think. Just because there are many stories of supernatural births in myths and legends of the past, that doesn't negate the fact that the supernatural birth of Jesus actually happened. Right? I think about like a common story, something like the boy who cried wolf. Right? The idea of that story is that uh, just because there were many instances where that thing didn't actually happen, Many instances where it was just fabricated. Many instances where it was just a story. It was just a myth. Doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen eventually. 
That's why the boy gets eaten by the wolf, right? It did actually happen eventually. And I don't think it's quite strong. Uh, but, and I'll address this a little bit more in a bit. But the fact remains, not only is there the social scandal, the theological scandal, but even there's an intellectual scandal for us today when we think about the birth of Jesus. Advent has a lot of scandal. And, and why, am I, why am I telling you all this? I'm, I promise I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you. I promise I'm not trying to bring you down. But we do have to recognize, this is just quite simply how the story begins. And the beauty of it, of course, and the reason why I can so gladly share it with you, all this scandal, is because God doesn't just leave us there in the, in the scandal. Right? God doesn't just leave Mary and Joseph there in the midst of their social scandal. Right in the midst of Joseph's troubling thoughts as he's thinking, I'm not going to kill her, but I am going to resolve to divorce her quietly. God shows up. He shows up and he says, fear not. This child is from me. You don't have to worry. It's not, it's not a product of sin. It's not a product of adultery. This isn't something shady. I'm doing something special here. I'm doing something supernatural here. That child will be the savior of sinners. You're going to call him Jesus. You're going to call him Emmanuel. He'll be the fulfillment of that prophecy, God with us. And this Christmas story here shifts dramatically from betrayal and shame and scandal to comfort and hope and consolation. You don't get the good news without first getting the bad news, right? If someone asks you, you want to hear the good news or the bad news, right? You always go, tell me the bad news first so the good news can comfort me, right? And we get the same thing in the Advent story. You start with scandal, but you end with consolation. The coming of Jesus means that for all the scandal, there is consolation. I think about the Christmas favorite song, uh, O Holy Night. You know, so often we, we see famous singers singing this song. It's a song that is often performed. But I love those lyrics in the first verse. I think it paints such a beautiful picture of what we actually see here in this Advent story. This world mired in scandal, and then here comes the consolation. We have, we have the lyrics of that song written for you. I'm just going to read it for you real quick. I promise I won't sing it, all right? But the words go, Long lay the world... In sin and error, pining, longing, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Here in this Advent story, even in the midst of all this scandal, we see consolation. There is even consolation for the intellectual scandal for us today. I think the consolation for the intellectual scandal that I just mentioned lies in the person of Jesus himself. The consolation is Jesus himself. Sure, there were many people, many special people in, in the ancient myths and stories who claimed to have special births. Yes, we have to acknowledge that. We don't want to turn a blind eye to that. You should be aware of that, right? So that when someone's like, did you know? You could be like, yes, I did. And they all, those special people, all ended up becoming gods and heroes of legends and myths. They became conquerors and kings. But you know what none of them ever became? None of them ever became the savior of sinners. 
None of those special people with special birth stories ever became Emmanuel, God with us. In a sea of would-be special people and heroes and saviors all with their own special birth story, Jesus stands out high above them. Jesus stands out unique. What makes Jesus unique? What makes even Christianity unique? That's the, the consolation for the intellectual scandal. What makes Jesus unique? Well, when you think about it, all the religions of this world, all the philosophies of this world, all the worldviews of this world, they tell you, climb up. They all tell you, no matter where you go, they all tell you, climb up, climb up, climb up. Meditate your way up. Pray your way up. Do good deeds your way up. Philosophize your way up. Perhaps even for those who aren't religious at all, they still have that ladder. They say, be tolerant, be open-minded, be accepting your way up. Or of course, the classic one, just the American dream. Make a lot of money your way up. And all these different worldviews, all these different religions, all these different would-be saviors tell you, all you got to do is climb. Just climb and climb and climb. But here Jesus comes, this very unique Messiah. He comes and he says, you know that climb never ends. Everyone else is telling you to climb. I'm telling you, it's never going to end. That climb, that ladder is endless. You can't climb up. I'm going to come down. I'm going to enter in. You aren't going to climb up. I'm going to come down. God would have to enter. The human race wouldn't be able to produce their own redeemer. So God would have to enter. God would have to do something supernatural. I love what one pastor once said. He said, a non-Christian challenged a Christian by asking him, if I told you there was a child born without a father, would you really believe it? If I told you that today, would you really believe it? And the Christian responds, yes. I would believe it if that child grew up to be Jesus. Right, the proof is in the pudding. Yes, we have to admit, virgin birth, that is supernatural. That is even hard to believe. But you know what makes it easier to believe? Who that child became. The uniqueness of our Savior. That Christ would come and he wouldn't just spew what the rest of the world spews in all different forms. But he would come and dramatically change the story of God coming down. God being with us. God entering into our scandal and our shame and our sin and our mess. And this would be a brand new story. And the Savior, yes, he had to be both God and man. As we, as we profess together in the Nicene Creed, that he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and also of the Virgin Mary. He had to be both God and man. He had to, our Redeemer had to be God because only God is adequate to save all the sinners, right? To save all of his people. A mere man can't do that. Right, even the most righteous man, theoretically speaking, if there was a mere man who was perfectly righteous, he could only really save himself. Only God could bear the sin and, and be righteous enough to save all his people, all he intends to save. But he also had to really be man. Our Redeemer had to really be a human being because he had to actually represent us. He had to be the new Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the new Adam would succeed. He had to be our representative. 
I've, I've heard some people say to me as we've dialogued, you know, how, I don't believe in this representative stuff. Like, how can someone else die for me? How can someone else be righteous in my place? And I just tell them, you know, we all believe in representatives, don't we? Right? We all believe in representatives. Just watch sports, right? Or watch someone watching sports. Why do they get so angry and sad and sometimes even cry when their team loses? And why do they get so happy when their team wins? You don't know these people. It's not your buddies playing out there. Why? Because we, for some reason, be it because of the city we live in, be it because of our culture, whatever it may be, we feel like they represent us somehow. So their victory is our victory. Their loss is our loss. Their shame is our shame. Right? And of course, it's not just something as small as sports. Even countries have representatives, leaders, diplomats, where what they do in their foreign relations affects all of us. We all have representatives, and on a cosmic scale, so we, we, we still do. We have Adam, who represents us by default because we're humans, and he failed. But our Redeemer would not only be fully God, but also fully man to represent us, to be truly with us. And that when we zoom out and see, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus was who he was. It even makes sense of the scandal of the virgin birth. It even makes sense of the scandal of the incarnation, of the word becoming flesh. And as I close, the last consolation, of course, we have for all of us here is, this, is the consolation for the social scandal. Not just for Mary and Joseph, but for all of us. I love that the Advent story starts scandalous like this. I love it. I love it because it shows us that Jesus is not ashamed to identify with sinful, scandalous humanity. It shows us that he's not embarrassed for this to be part of his story. We didn't read this, but if you've been at our church for some time, you've probably heard a sermon on this. We've read the, first, uh, the second half of Matthew chapter 1, but do you know how the first half of Matthew chapter 1 begins? It's the genealogy of Jesus. It's his family line. It's his ancestry. You know, you see on TV all the time now, commercials for websites like Ancestry.com and uh, what is it? You, Me, 23 or something like that. For Asians, it's just, I don't think we really buy into that. It's just how interesting could our ancestry really be, right? It's just a bunch of Asians, right? It's like maybe some Chinese in there, some Mongolian in there. But you know what, if, if Jesus had an Ancestry.com profile, you know what the results would be as we see in Matthew chapter 1? You know what would show up on there? There'd be some incest in that family line. There'd be some prostitutes in that family line that we see in Matthew chapter 1. There'd be a high profile case of adultery and murder. There'd be a very poor immigrant widow. And it's not just the woman, of course. There would even be a king, a terrible king, who was so wicked that he was cursed by God. We see all of that in Jesus' ancestry report. You see all sorts of scandal, and yet this shows us Jesus is not embarrassed for all these stories. To, he's not embarrassed to let that be a part of his story. And when he looks at you and me, 
I don't know all your stories, but I'm sure you look at your history, at your record, you look inward, you look outward, you look at your family line, I'm sure there's all sorts of scandal. And when Jesus sees that, we know from Matthew chapter one, even from Mary and Joseph's scandal, or at least seeming scandal, we know Jesus is not embarrassed, he's not ashamed. He will still come into that story. He will still enter in, and he will come down, and he'll take part with you. He will be truly God with us. And Jesus would come not only to enter into our scandal, but he would come to cover our scandal. Jesus' mom would get scandalized because she would be treated like an adulterer when she wasn't. She would be viewed that way, even by her own fiance, at least for a short time. Jesus himself would be scandalized because he'd be treated like an illegitimate child. He'd be accused of that. He would even be, uh, people would say that he lost credibility because of that, even though he wasn't. And of course, ultimately, on that cross, Jesus would be scandalized in the ultimate, deepest way by being treated like a sinner on that cross when he wasn't. And here we get that, even all the way back in the Advent story, we get that glimpse of a God who says, I want to be with you so much. I want to be Emmanuel so much, so deeply, so truly, so profoundly, that I will even take the, the punishment for sin that you deserve. I will take the wrath of God against sin, and I will take that upon myself in your place. That is the love of Jesus. That is the love of Emmanuel. It's a love much like Joseph's. But, it pale, but, but Joseph's love pales in comparison. Joseph had that great combo. He was both just and compassionate. He didn't want to put Mary to shame. And our God would also be just and compassionate with you. He had to do what was right. He had to punish sin because sin deserves punishment. He is a holy God. And yet he didn't want to put you to shame. And so instead of you bearing that punishment for sin, his son would instead. Emmanuel would instead. Church, friends, as we enter into this Advent season, please don't skim by the scandal. I want, let's settle into the scandal a little bit. Even settle into your own scandals a little bit. Don't just, don't just push it down or sweep it under the rug. Because there's a beauty in this Christmas story when it starts with scandal. It shows us what kind of God we have. It shows us this God who is willing to step into our mess, who doesn't walk around it, who doesn't, who, who doesn't abhor it. And much more as you see the scandal, would you see that much more the consolation, the savior of sinners, Emmanuel, that he wouldn't just enter in, but he would cover all of our scandal with his blood. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to take some time to just simply marvel. To marvel at the fact that the word became flesh. To marvel at the fact that Jesus was born. That the, for the first time in history, God was born. Why? To be God with us. Lord, we praise Emmanuel. We praise Jesus. We praise this unique 
Messiah, this unique Savior that this world could never produce. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you don't, you don't bat an eye at all this scandal. That, Lord, you don't, you're not ashamed or embarrassed of all this scandal. That you put it into your story. You let it all become part of your story. And I thank you that's true for us. Lord, would you bring out all of our scandals and would you cover it with the blood of Jesus? Would you cover it with the great love, the just and compassionate love of Emmanuel? Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the Advent season in which we get to celebrate this in a special way. We give all glory, honor, and and all of our love, all of our hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.